TED Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hi, I'm Adam Grant. I think about work a lot. That's why I wanted to tell you about Canva Docs, which will help you expertly craft your work communications. They have an AI text generator built in called MagicWrite, powered by OpenAI. You can generate any text you want. Job descriptions, marketing plans, sales proposals. Just start with a prompt, and you'll have a draft in seconds. Tweak your draft, and you're done. Try Canva Docs with an AI text generator built in at canva.com. Designed for work. Got a business problem? There's a TED Talk for that. Stay updated on everything business on TED Business, a podcast hosted by Columbia Business School professor Modupe Akinola. Every week, she'll introduce you to leaders with unique insights on work, answering questions like, how do four-day work weeks work? Do will a machine ever take my job? Get some surprising answers on TED Business wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, Worklifers, it's Adam Grant. Welcome back to Taken for Granted, my podcast with the TED Audio Collective. I'm an organizational psychologist. My job is to think again about how we work, lead, and live. Today, my guest is Satya Nadella, chairman and CEO of Microsoft, where he's worked since 1992. Satya is widely admired for transforming the culture, building the cloud business, and steering a 700% gain in shares. His approval rating on Glassdoor is nearly perfect, and this conversation will give you a sense of why. He exudes care, curiosity, and humility. He's also a big fan of cricket and poetry. And as a computer scientist, of course he loves data. And Microsoft has gathered quite a bit on the future of work. So enjoy. There was a time, and I'm not going to locate it, but you can, when Microsoft was externally known for a lot of internal competition, forced rankings that pitted people against each other were pretty popular. And you came in and challenged that dynamic and said, look, we want to collaborate. We want to be one Microsoft. Can you help us understand how you made that change real? Being essentially the first non-founder CEO, I felt the real need to, in some sense, refound the company, you know, borrowing a phrase that Reid Hoffman uses, which I like a lot, because from time to time, companies need that moment where you need to reground yourself. And starting with both the sense of purpose and mission, like why do we exist? And if we sort of disappeared, would anybody miss us? To remind, because I think every one of us who work in any company need that anchoring in order to then go on to make all the decisions and uh, work we do. And then the other one was to really put forth the culture that we aspire to. And that's where I borrowed from uh, Carol Dweck's work on growth mindset, uh, which has been a godsend to us because, you know, it's really helped us go from this know-it-alls to learn-it-alls. And that mission and culture has given us, perhaps, Adam, more of that permission 
to look inwards, look to what systems, processes, behaviors make us successful in the first place and reinforce them. And then the same thing, what systems, processes, and behaviors make us sort of not successful and then get rid of them. So is this the future? Are we in it right now? Or when is it coming? (laughs) You know, we definitely are in it and it is going to evolve. I think our expectations of what, where, and how we work have gone through a real structural shift. But I think we're still figuring it out in terms of this next phase before long-term trends truly stabilize. Satya, you made one of the most profound comments I've heard through the whole pandemic when you said we should stop thinking about remote work like a switch and think about it more like a dial. I'd love to hear you elaborate on that and how it's affected your thinking at Microsoft. If you take a two-by-two grid where you say people are either together or remote and are collaborating synchronously or asynchronously. In the previous era, so to speak, before the pandemic, you could get away by creating some norms and sort of forcing people into one or two quadrants. Whereas now, all the four quadrants at any given time have to be excellent in order for work to get done, collaboration to happen. Take just even one of the data points, uh, Adam, which is the triple peak, right? We knew it even going into the pandemic, we had a bit of it, but now it's clear. Right. I mean, I every night am triaging just before going to bed, all my mail, preparing for my next day. There's lots of asynchronous work I do. So in particular, supporting time shifted, like in a multinational company, a lot of the meetings are happening across time zones. Uh, I think we now expect us to both, quote unquote, asynchronously participate in them. So I think that's one area uh, where we have to really think about asynchronous, synchronous work as much as we think about remote work. The second thing that I would say is the physical space even is changing, right? But why are people coming into work? What type of meeting should we even do when people come into work? Somebody said to me, space is the ultimate collaboration tool that was refined in a 200-year period, right? After all, office space, they've done a lot of uh, work to refine it. We're just not going to trade it away, but we're going to use it perhaps differently. And then the last thing I'd say is we onboarded something like 50,000 employees during the pandemic. I mean, and so that means we have learned even what does onboarding look like? What does knowledge capital or accumulation of knowledge capital and learning look like inside of a corporation where you can start delivering some of this in the flow of your work versus you having to go offline to build that. You have to substitute for some of the things that happened in a physical workplace. So those would be the three things, at least when I think about flexibility, thinking about hybrid work as a dial. It's more about really rethinking how people collaborate, how people learn, how you use physical space. Well, I'm a big fan of rethinking for obvious reasons. And I want to try to speak one of your languages. Can we double-click on each of those themes that you just raised? Is double-click the right lingo here? Is that what we're looking for? Okay, good. Yeah. All right, I'm trying to speak a little bit more tech. So (laughs) first one is this idea of the triple peak. Your data have shown that about 30% of people are not just becoming most work active in the morning and in the afternoon, but again, just before bedtime. And I'm trying to figure out if this is a good thing or a bad thing. On the one hand, I think it meets the desire for flexible hours. On the other hand, it's probably bad for disconnecting and getting a full night's sleep. So how are you thinking about managing that? 
It's a great question. And I think a lot more research, quite frankly, fundamentally has to be done, right? Because one of the ways uh, we even think about the broader definition of productivity is more thinking about collaboration and obviously all the output metrics. Learning is another one, but well-being is one of the most important pieces of productivity. So the, the reason why I think a little bit of the hybrid peak is definitely going up is the desire that everyone has for flexibility. And so that paradox, if you need flexibility and yet you're trying to get work done, some of it means the workday does get spread out. Uh, so this is one of those places where at least we are trying to say, what is the way to build even into the system of work, how a work assignment happens? We have the right nudges, right? One little feature we added even, for example, in email, like we, this was even before pandemic we started, which is especially the higher up in the org you are and you send a lot of emails over the weekend, that's the surest way to destroy a whole bunch of people's weekends. Weekend. Uh, and so to be able to set the norm and the expectation that you don't need the response back, some of that will also be very helpful. So I think we'll need to learn the soft skills, Adam. It's not about a tool, but it's good old-fashioned, good management practices that we need in order for people uh, to have their well-being taken care of. Satya, are you saying that even you refrain from weekend emails? Well, you know, I am learning, Adam, every day. You know, one of the things that at least I'm getting better at, I would say, is being able to set that expectation. And uh, quite frankly, the other thing that I feel most proud of is creating a culture where people are willing not to take a mail from the CEO and just feel that they have to respond. Let's talk about space. You did an internal analysis at Microsoft showing that over 60,000 people, when they had to shift to remote during the pandemic, their networks got more siloed and more static. And we know from decades of evidence that that's bad for learning and innovation, that you end up with all this redundant knowledge instead of fresh perspectives. So how are you tackling that, both in a remote hybrid world, but also as people potentially aren't in the office at the same time all the time? Just yesterday, I was reviewing some research which our folks are doing on what are people coming back to work for? In fact, what team norms are emerging? What are managers deciding to congregate people for? Is it onboarding? Is it some design session? Is it some mentoring? Because that's another thing that we have realized that in order to do even good one-on-one -on -one personal mentoring, sometimes having the manager one-on-ones probably help a lot. So we're trying to come up even with the taxonomy right now of just just even best practices that we are seeing in order to then say, this is how the physical space then has to change. Uh, we're building out physical space so that it's more modular, literally, you know, just like how digital tools have the malleability, can we to some degree create the same even with the physical space? But that's how we're approaching it. You talked about onboarding a little bit. What are you finding about effective onboarding with 50,000 people who have never been physically in the same room together? The biggest, biggest thing that we've found is the direct connection to your immediate manager, right? You had an onboarding system. People went for the onboarding week or day, and there were lots of other people who sort of helped you uh, with many things. Whereas now, the full service concierge is now your manager. And unless your manager deeply cares and takes the responsibility of onboarding you. Everything from, hey, are all the benefits provision? Are you having any challenges with any of the paperwork? to making the introduction to all the people who are needed, both inside the org, outside the org, right? There was this one fantastic practice of a very senior leader who got hired in, and I learned from one of my uh, direct reports was how the, he, he took the 
you know, real care and introducing the person who came into Microsoft to all the people personally. Like he would in fact set up the team's call and make the introduction and then leave the team's call so that then she could actually have the one-on-one with the person. That type of deep care for onboarding being taken by even the first level manager, even interns. In fact, we saw this, you know, interns who want to come back to Microsoft are those who had a great manager who took real deep care in their experience. So that perhaps is the biggest thing that we are trying to make sure we build into our managerial capability. I think tech companies in general have had this thing about, hey, it's all about technology and management is not the critical thing, except everybody's realizing and waking up and saying, look, leadership and management and technological excellence both go together. And we actually have to put our money where our mouth is and focus on building that managerial capability. And so we have this framework, Adam, called model coach care, which is sort of the thing that we say every manager needs to sort of exhibit in terms of real skills. And I'm glad we got that started a few years before the pandemic, and it's really helped us a lot during the pandemic. But I think that it's now become really clear to me that the company's success depends on great everyday management. That approach of model coach care, I think, has been central to one of the major culture changes that you've spearheaded. I've found in some of my latest research that it's not enough just to admit that you have things to learn as a leader. It's it's helpful to ask for feedback and open the door. But what's much more powerful is to actually criticize yourself out loud. Because that way, you're not just claiming that you're receptive. You are proving that you can take it. And one of the things I've admired about your leadership for a long time is the humility and vulnerability that you show, that you're not afraid to admit when you don't have all the answers or when you made a mistake or got something wrong. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you built the confidence to share your mistakes and what that looks like doing it effectively? That's a great question. That comes from, I think, feeling very secure, right? The psychological safety that one creates around you, especially the more senior you are, becomes, I think, super important. Uh, And to your point, one technique of that is to share your own fallibility because that gives confidence to others. Feeling secure leads you to be more vulnerable. But then the real issue is systemically, how do you help people feel secure? And so so that is where the cultural element of having psychological safety as being a first-class thing that's talked about, where people are not jumping down people's throats the first time they admit a mistake, which, by the way, I do sometimes, and then I, I have to check myself, right? In my last staff meeting, somewhere asked me this question, hey, when somebody sort of sends a mail where you know something's wrong, what do you do? And I thought about it for a while and I said, you know, the first thing that comes to mind, of course, I want to send back a flame mail too, like the next person. But then at good times, I check myself and say, God, you know, all that'll do is cause that person to be more stressed, but I got to really look at the systemic issues here and then help them recognize to fix it. So the more introspective we are in creating these safe zones and psychological safety as a cultural thing, as opposed to any one individual being vulnerable from time to time, I think is probably the most important thing. One of the things that that surfaces for me is the challenge, especially for people from marginalized groups, to have that psychological safety. Um, We we know it's that much more difficult to to speak up, whether you're raising a problem or bringing an idea, uh, when you are not resembling the dominant majority in the room. And I know that's something you spend a lot of time on and care deeply about. What guidance do you have for leaders and managers there? 
That's a fantastic point. In fact, that is the, the crux of it, right? Which is that everyday practice of figuring out what is the lived experience of the people in your team? So when you think about when in the model coach care, that last element of care, it's that extra level of thought that you put into, who are all the people on my team? The reality is all of us have different histories, different backgrounds, different tail events impacting us. And so being able to deeply have empathy for that and then making sure that their voice is heard in a meeting, that flexibility we talk about is being exercised to help people do their very best at work while they can take care of everything that's needed in their life. That is what I think is the big thing that I think we're all, I would say we're much more capable today just because of what the trauma of the pandemic has taught us that. Now the question is, how do we exercise it? I think the impact of what's happening broadly in the world on any employee at this point cannot be separated from how the employee feels at work. Are you ready for a lightning round? Let's do it. Okay, ground rules. Looking for between a word and a sentence, you can pass once if you want. Okay. Make sense? All right. You can pass more times if you want, but I always think it's fun when, when we drag that extra answer out of you. So first question is, if you weren't in tech, what job would you most want to have? I'll trade with you. <laughs> I don't want your job because I'm not qualified, but I think you'd be pretty good at mine. Okay. Organizational psychologist, Satya's future career, <laughs> teaching at a business school near you. Watch out. What is the case for working at Microsoft as opposed to other tech companies? If you want to make others cool, join Microsoft. If you want to be cool, join somebody else. I like it. Making others cool. Worst career advice you've ever received? I'll sort of say that the best career advice I got is don't wait for your next job to do your best work. So the worst would be the compliment to it. Got it. Something you've rethought in the past year? The role of multinational companies in terms of building bridges across people. More important in society, poetry or cricket? <laughs> poetry in cricket. <laughs> what does that mean? I have to ask a follow-up there. I mean, cricket to me, I can go on and on, is the game that has taught me everything there needs to be about leadership, life, and outlook. And I love poetry. And so anytime I see uh, a great spin bowler bowl, to me, it's poetry in action. All right, I'll take it. I have to now watch cricket to understand what that means. I'll get back to you. <laughs> as far as being a learn-it-all is concerned, it seems like one of the last people in human history to successfully pull that off was da Vinci. You're on your way. What is the next thing that you're excited to learn that you don't understand now? What I am most excited about right now is what are the drivers of next level of economic growth. I want to learn how do we shape the democratization of technology such that healthcare is better, education is better, the energy transition happens faster, we all get better mechanisms of credit, because I think tech as it's today expressed is too narrow in terms of its economic impact, and that's what needs to change, and I want to learn everything there is to be about it. Well, we have our marching orders for the next few years of research then. Stay tuned. Stepping out of the lightning round, one of the things that I love most getting to sit down with leaders that I look up to is not just hearing them talk about how they think, but actually observing them in action and getting them to see them do what they do best. 
And speaking with your team and also having seen you a few times over the years as we've interacted, I know one of the things you excel at is just motivating people to do things they think are impossible. And I wondered if we could do a quick role play to, to get a taste of how you do that. So the scene is we've got a bunch of faculty at Wharton who like to do their own independent work. They're very much kind of living in their own silos. They don't collaborate as much as we might like. We don't even necessarily have a school mission that they rally around. And I kind of like my independence. That's why I chose this field. In tenure is something that, that gives me lots of freedom. Can you motivate me to collaborate more and to show up at the office occasionally? And <laughs> full disclosure... I don't want to do it. The motivation has to come from what it is that you as a researcher are trying to do and how teaming can help you do that better, right? Even at Microsoft, quite frankly, we're trying to emphasize, hey, great teams are important, but great teaming is the currency. And in fact, one of the phrases I use, getting to yes on unmet, unarticulated needs of customers is what requires great teaming. So in your context, it will be like, hey, that research paper, that research output will be better. You will have more fame and fortune if you team better with your colleagues. And if I'm not motivated by fame or fortune, but really just enjoy my freedom and my intellectual exploration? Think about like what is the source of intellectual exploration. It's sort of your own ability to learn from others. And so therefore your colleagues, I always think about the daily routine, the number of people I meet and how I was able to go explore new things because of the people and what I learned from them. And that, I mean, when I think about what it means to be a learn-it-all or a lifelong learner is you genuinely believe that you can learn something from every single person you interact with. There's a, a thing that I look at as my learning system, if there is one, I picked it up from my dad. He had this diary he would write every day where he would sort of put tasks done, people met, ideas generated to act on. And the source of basically the ideas generated to act on are people and also the work you did. And so that to me is a continuous system. That is such a, a simple way to take the, the to-do list that everybody gets stuck on and say, wait a minute, I should also have a to-meet and to-learn list. Absolutely. When you talked about model coach care earlier, I was wondering how your views about care have evolved, especially in the last two years. Yeah, I mean, I think it's the biggest thing that I've realized is this thing about everybody is going through some tail event and, you know, and you need to be able to be there as a manager, as a team, and a set of coworkers when that tail event happens. And that doesn't come without you being tuned to asking the question, observing what's happening around you and the needs. And so that sort of, and then again, it's a little bit of even creating that safety, right? When you have the need, let's just create an environment where people come to support you. Uh, because, I mean, I always think, I mean, we spend a lot of time at work and work needs to be the community that even supports you in your life. And how do we create an environment that allows for that natural flow? That's why I like the word uh, care as part of core management. I do too. And it's it's something that I think a lot of people have neglected for a long time, and in part because they're thinking too much about how do I how do I extract the most output out of this human and make them as much of a machine as possible, as opposed to saying, wait a minute, <laughs> there are tasks that we outsource to machines. We want humans to do the work that's really hard to squeeze every single ounce of of effort out of, and that means we need them to give them the space to invest in their own well-being. We need to give them time to to incubate creative ideas. 
Why, why are there still so many leaders who don't quite grasp this? You know, in fact, one of the other things we've been thinking and studying a lot is knowledge work and even first-line work, right? For the first time, the digital tool and the proliferation and the use even in first-line has gone up very heavily. And some of the data that we are seeing there is, for example, there's a lot of stress in first-line work. A lot of the first-line workers feel disconnected from the company. The managers in first line, in fact, are the most stressed because they lack the support and the connection from the company, right? I th- I always go back to saying, how do we help managers feel like they're supported? One of the things, Adam, that a lot of people sometimes come to me at my, you know, at Microsoft, you'll say, Satya, at the top people get it, people at the bottom get it, in the middle, there's all this problem. And I look at it and say, for most of my 30 years of professional career, 32 years now, I was in the middle. And so I do know <laughs> those are hard jobs, right? Because you have all these deadlines that you need to meet, and then you have people, you know, who work for you, who have all these tail needs and or just regular needs. So you get squeezed in the middle in some sense. So therefore, if anything, I've come to recognize to the very core of your question, unless we create the empowerment, the space, the capability in the middle so that they can care for their people, it's just not going to happen. That reminds me of some classic sociology evidence showing that when people were micromanaged at work over the next decade, they actually became more controlling and authoritarian at home with their own children. Like they were deprived of freedom in one domain and then they they almost they they overreacted and and overcorrected in, in a different domain. And I think what you're describing is something very similar that when when we put too much pressure on managers, then they end up restricting the freedom of the people that they're managing. One of the things I always think a little bit about is managers who take risk away and then create different metrics for people and unconstrained. That's like a habit we all have to develop, right? Because otherwise, if all the risks have to be taken by somebody else who is working on your team, then you're creating an environment where it just will be very, very hard for people to feel that they can have a more holistic way that they can be productive. I want to ask you about one of your favorite topics, which is gaming. You've had Xbox for a long time, but you've made major investments recently. There's obviously a while ago there was Minecraft, but more recently you bought Activision. What's driving that big focus on gaming? It's been 20 years since we've had Xbox. We love gaming. In fact, you go back to PC gaming even before Xbox. Uh, Flight Simulator is as old as Microsoft. So we've been in gaming throughout. I always say, you know, that an ideal Microsoft sort of day would be you get up in the morning and um, you write some code and then you do some documents and collaboration and play games. So that's kind of the three identities of Microsoft that sort of are core. So one of the things to me is, As the 3 billion people playing games, uh, we know that gaming can be, in fact, it's the biggest entertainment category there is, digital category there is, but it also creates, I think, sense of joy and community, which is unparalleled. And quite frankly, when people talk about what this next generation of immersive experiences and metaverse is, guess what? They are games. We've been building metaverse-like worlds for many, many decades now. And now we can even think about gaming as a pretty horizontal capability that is probably going to inform this very next phase of the internet that people describe as the metaverse. 
I'd love to hear more from you on the metaverse. Uh, are we going to be having this conversation with our avatars in five years? Is this just second life with better technology? <laughs> Where do you see this all going? I do think of it as the, just the natural evolution of the internet. It's the next phase where you have more increasing digitization of people, places, and things. Having the embodied presence in a meeting like this where you and I can both have spatial audio, real eye contact, and be able to look around and have a sense of space. These are all things uh, today that, of course, have to be done with a headset. Uh, but even in 2D, when you know Mesh to Teams launches later this year, I'm very excited about even how people are able to go to take advantage of avatars, as you said, and some of the capabilities like spatial audio even on 2D surfaces. I have always thought that the killer app uh, here is embodied presence. Presence is always, I mean, video presence has been definitely massive during the pandemic. And now being able to have more of a spatial embodied presence, I think is much more doable the next time we have any place to be remote. Satya, as always, this has been a treat. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Adam. It's always a pleasure. Taken for Granted is hosted by me, Adam Grant, and produced by Ted with Cosmic Standard. Our team includes Colin Helms, Eliza Smith, Jacob Winnick, Hannah Kingsley-Ma, Asia Simpson, Michelle Quint, Ben Ben Cheng, and Anna Phelan. This episode was produced by Samaya Adams. Our show is mixed by Rick Kwan. Our fact checker is Mirabelle Jesu-Tassen. Original music by Hansdale Sue and Allison Layton-Brown. We featured this conversation as part of the Wharton Future of Work Conference. We're building out physical space so that it's more modular, literally. Are you saying that my desk is going to be made out of Legos? <laughs> more or less. At least you should be able to make your desk appear in different places at different times, depending on the type of work you're going to do on that given day. I spent a lot of my childhood preparing for that, so <laughs> I think that will go very well.